0: This podcast is offered by San Francisco Zen Center on the web at sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good evening, everyone. It's a joy and honor to be with you all again in this virtual Buddha field. And uh, as Kodo just said, uh, for those of you who are joined recently, we launched a uh, 10-week study of the topic of karma at City Center and on the the online practice center um, just last week. And uh, the full title of the practice spirit is Becoming Unbound, Understanding, Working With, and Ending Karma. And for those of you who aren't uh, or maybe are unfamiliar with the concept of karma, the word means action, deed, or doing. Although the, the Buddhist emphasis is, is using the word uh, in a sense of intentional action or, or volitional act, uh, behavior. And as the Buddha said, intention is karma. Intending, one does karma by way of body, speech, and mind. So in Buddhism, the theory of karma is also known as the theory of cause and effect, of action and reaction. And this evening, I want to consider with you how our comic consciousnesses form through the activity of, of selfing. And I want to begin by uh, sharing a personal reminiscence. One of my favorite places when I was young was along a body, a water body known as the Pine Creek. And this is, Pine Creek is a tributary in the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania. For anyone who who is from the East Coast or knows Pennsylvania at all, you might know that area. The river, um, the Pine Creek River flows near my uh, cabins that my grandfather used to own in the Tioga State uh, Forest Mountains. And every summer for about five years when I was between the ages of 10 and 15, my father would take us uh, there for vacations. So we'd go you know, usually several times a year. And the previous five years of my childhood had been very difficult due to family circumstances. And this was one of the few places uh, where I, I began to feel that I could finally reconnect with a, a deeper, more authentic part of myself. And I would spend hours exploring and hanging uh, out along the creek. There was a little um, Kind of a ledge that I like to crawl under and just uh, sit there for hours as well. And and I uh, particularly enjoyed sitting on a rock that kind of jutted out. It felt to me as a you know young kid, it was like, oh, this is really far out into uh, the creek. But when I actually went back, you know, uh, decade or so ago, it was only like three feet away from the you know the bank itself, so it wasn't actually that far. And I would sit on this rock and simply watch the water flow by and, and laying on it, perhaps watching the clouds uh, pass overhead. And oftentimes as I sat there or I laid there, I would reflect on past events that had brought me to that point in my life. And I would think about everything that was happening in the present at that time, as well as where it might all lead in the future. And of particular concern was what course my life would take in the future, and whether I would have um, more control over my circumstances than I did in the past, and to what extent. As an uh, ancient sage once said, according to the Buddha, O Brahman, it is just like a mountain river, flowing far and swift taking everything along with it, there is no moment, no instant, no second when it stops flowing, but it goes on flowing and continuing. So Brahman is human life like a mountain river. And as the Buddha at another point told Latapala, the world is in a continuous flux and is impermanent. Now, consider for a moment the, the nature of a moving body of water, such as a, a river or a stream or creek, and its particular flow. While the banks and the underlying bed are what give the stream a definable shape and location, it's the flowing water that constitutes a stream or a river. And each stream is unique and has its individual nature or character, and you know obviously some streams are uh, flow clear and fast, and others are you know somewhat muddy. And while we can affix a particular um, name to uh, a stream or rivers, river, again such as Pine Creek, Tassahar Creek, the Ganges River. When we stand back on the bank and look into the body of the running stream, what do we see? We see there is no constancy there at all. We may be looking at a fairly steady shape, but the actual makeup of the stream is always changing. So we see the water in front of us just for a moment as it passes. Immediately replaced by um, a new swash that also then moves on fairly quickly. And while there may be various things that appear in the stream—fish, a leaf, uh, a um, uh, boat, and uh, an eddy—they are all temporary events passing through. So nothing is fixed in a flowing stream, but something is always there. It's an ongoing pattern, you could say, of changing waters. If we consider a river or a stream in terms of a framework of time, then as we stand on the riverbank, the narrow portion of the stream we're looking at can be likened to the present moment. The past moment has already flowed downstream, and the future moment is still upstream. Nothing remains the same from one moment to the next, except the shape of the river that's kind of delineated by the banks. You could imagine the shape in some way. Those banks form a body of sorts. And there is no enduring entity to the stream. Just as there's no, let's say, lasting self in the mind. And as the Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, no one ever steps in the same river twice, or it's not the same river, and they are not the same person. As I um, sat, on the rock watching the pine creek flow by, I enjoyed observing the way in which the water behaved. I was particularly captivated by the way in which, as the water flows over rocks and ledges and uh, around obstacles in the stream, eddies would often form. Eddies have a a tendency to circle, spinning around and around, but remaining somewhat fixed in their position. And they are, you know, it become a bit of a kind of backflow or backwater in the stream while the rest of the water kind of flows by. And if you study an eddy, you can observe the way that inside the eddy, the momentum concentrates and moves inward to a pattern of circling. And it's as if it's kind of the tension, or the tension turns away from the fresh, free flowing stream and it's drawn into the kind of this central peter force of the circular pattern. And that activity, that action, is what defines an eddy. Of course, in a, in a river or stream, a, uh, an eddy depends on many conditions. These include the, the uh, state of the eddy itself, just uh, one moment ago, what happened before, the shape of the riverbed, the nearby rocks, uh, the water flows mainly upstream, the water, the amount of snowfall last winter, uh, any obstacles in the stream like branches, fallen trees, and so on, right? All of it has some kind of impact. And each eddy that is formed is unique. It has its own individual nature and character. You could say its own suchness. And once in place, the characteristics of an eddy kind of tend to continue, right, more or less the same unless the conditions for its formation change or end, in which case it dissolves. Now, if you want to take a cosmic view, going back and back in time and space, the conditions for the manifestation of an eddy depend on the history of the Earth, the formation of this planet. You could say the formation of the solar system, the whole history of the universe. And science tells us uh, essentially that a river is fluid stardust, a flow of light, and that a particle of any size, including a water particle, is congealed energy. So eddies are energetic patterns of a river. And similarly, you could say, all forms of matter and energy from quarks and galaxies are patterns of the, let's say, the substrate of the universe, all phenomena. You, me, trees, animals, clouds, traffic, your dinner, the soup I had for dinner, and so on, all are essentially Merely temporary eddies in the ever-flowing and universal stream of existence. Pretty amazing, huh? So now, the uh, stream or flow metaphor has been used in descriptions of mind and reality for thousands of years and by numerous philosophical and spiritual traditions, including, of course, Buddhism. In Buddhism, in the teachings of Buddhism, a, a sentient being is often described with the metaphor of mindstream. Mindstream is an English translation of a, a Buddhist philosophical technical term, Chitta samtana. I think I said that right, which is uh, Sanskrit. And, uh, represents the moment-to-moment continuity, the samtana, the continuity of awareness. Furthermore, it's said that each of us is defined by a life stream of connected moments. One moment of consciousness, acting as a principal cause, transfers its karmic burden to the next. And so on during our entire life, as well to death. According to Buddhism, it's our very belief in a self that holds this karmic stream intact and enables us to have a, the illusion of being a, a separate, discrete person. In the way that the characteristics of a, a stream or an eddy tend to repeat themselves, once they are set in place or set in motion, it's said that the repetition of karma karma formations is what gives the sense of continuity to one's personality. It's said that it is this illusory idea, or rather uh, the energy of it, which is structured according to our karma, our intentional actions. And that continues from one lifetime to the next. So let's look more closely for a moment of how personality, or I'm thinking of it as self-eddies, form. Right? How does selfing, or belief in a separate self, happen in the first place? Right? And even though the Buddha never um, neither affirmed nor denied the existence of a self, he did talk of the process by which the mind creates, you could say, senses of self, what he called I-making or my-making as as it pursues its desires. And according to Buddhist philosophy, what we call a being or an individual or I- is only a combination of ever-changing physical and mental forces or energies, which can be divided into five groups, uh, five aggregates. Uh, what is known in Sanskrit also as skandhas, and skandhas means keeps uh, aggregates, collections, piles, groupings, right? and so in Buddhism, uh, skandhas uh, referred to the five aggregates of clinging, which are the five material and mental factors that take part in the rise of craving and clinging, that which gives rise to desire, right? And they're also explained as the five factors that constitute, uh, and explain a, a um, a sentient being's personality, right? And the five aggregates are heaps, uh, clinging are as follows. There's um, these are all in Sanskrit. Uh, rupa, uh, rupa vedana, sab, samjna, samskara, and Vijnana. So rupa means form or material image or impression. The second one, vedana, uh, are sensations or feelings received from form. In Vedan in this case is not a matter of emotions, not, uh, but it involves the, the sensing or the feeling of something as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the third, samjha, uh, which means perceptions or cognition, and refers to the capacity or to, to grasp or to recognize the you could say the distinguishing features or characteristics of a mind object. And then the fourth is samskara, mental uh, activity or formations, which I'm going to say a little bit more about in a moment. And finally, the fifth, vijñana, which is consciousness or awareness. It's that which recognizes, that which knows. So the skandhas or aggregates work together to create our experiences. And while we could spend time looking at each of these aggregates to understand them and how they contribute to a sense of self, Given that we're studying karma, I want to focus on the fourth aggregate of mental formations, samskaras. Uh And samskara is more about our predilections, our biases, our likes and dislikes, and other attributes that make up our psychological profiles, you could say. And samskara is defined by Buddhists in many ways. The terms are volitional formations, mental impressions, uh, conditioned phenomena, dispositions, mm, forces that condition psychic activity, forces that shape moral and spiritual development. And samskara figures into many Buddhist teachings. Besides just being the fourth of the five aggregates of the five skandhas, samskara is also the second link of the 12 uh, full chain causation. of the 12 links of dependent origination is another way to refer to them. And we'll be studying these further on in the practice period because they provide insight into kind of, you could say, the spinning wheel of existence. And as such, they're very closely uh, linked to karma. So under mental formations, under skandhas, included all the activities, both good and bad, wholesome and wholesome, and they're said to be 52. And I'm not going to go through the whole list, so I'll spare you that. Um, But you might want to look it up, you know, because there are wholesome and unwholesome, and there's kind of different groupings of them. Now, remember, the Buddha's own definition of karma. Mm -hmm. He said, karma is volition. It's volition that I call karma for having willed one acts by body's speech and mind. And volition is mental construct, mental activity. Its function is to direct, direct the mind in the sphere of some kind of activity, good, bad, or neutral activities. And in other words, you know, volition uh, is kind of an impulse, urge. Uh, it's a conceptual motivation behind the direction of mind's attention. Almost like a rudder in some way, right? Sending things in this direction, right? Creating attention to go in a particular direction. And while there are said to be six kinds of volition that correspond to each of the six uh, sense faculties, uh, seeing, hearing, sensing, smelling, tasting, and consciousness, it's said that only volitional actions, such as attention, will, determination, confidence, concentration, wisdom, energy, there's also desire, hate, ignorance, uh, conceit, idea of self, right? Only relational actions can produce karmic effects. That's one of the things we, we want to come to understand in our study of karma. How is it that relational actions are the only one that only ones that create karma? Okay, so for example, let's say you, you walk into a room and you see an object. So sight is a function of Vedana, the second skanda. The object he recognizes an apple, right? And uh, that's the um, samja, right, perception. Uh, an opinion arises about the apple. You like apples, or you don't like apples, maybe. I don't like apples, right? So that reaction or a mental formation is a samskara. All of these functions are connected, then, by the fifth, which is vijñana. Awareness. So, our psychological conditionings of consciousness, our subconscious, are, are functions of some scars of aggregates. If we are, for example, um, afraid of water, or we uh, quickly become impatient, or we're, we're shy with strangers, or we love to dance, all that falls under some scar. And willful actions create karma. Again, the, f- the fourth skanda is linked to karma. Uh, in the Mahayana Buddhist philosophy of Yogacara, samskaras are impressions and they collect in what's called the storehouse consciousness so the, the, the Alaya Vijnana. And it's said that the seeds, the bija of karma arise from this. So I spoke about in the class before, and I think in a, in a previous lecture, this idea that there are a lot of agricultural. Uh, analogies used around karma. So here you see it again. Seeds, bija, that give rise, you know, to future results. So all of the above is to essentially describe what we are we call a being or an individual or an I. And it's it's only a convenient name or a label given to the combination of the five aggregates. And like all conditioned things, they are themselves all impermanent, all constantly changing. In, uh, in his book, What the Buddha Taught, Vapala Ruhala, uh, Ruhala uh, great book, if you have a chance, read it. Uh, he writes that one thing disappears Conditioning the appearance of the next in a series of cause and effect. There is no unchanging substance in them. There is nothing behind the five aggregates that can be called a permanent self, an in Atman. Individually or anything that can in reality be called I. None of the five aggregates alone can be really called I. When these five physical and mental aggregates that are interdependent are working together in combination as a physio-psychological machine, we get the end an idea of I. But this is only a false idea, a mental formation. Just one of supposedly 52 mental formations that fall under the fourth aggregate of volition. Okay? And Mahula uh, adds. Then he says, "In other words, there is no unmoving mover behind the movement. It is only movement. It is not correct to say that life is moving, but life is movement itself." Let me read that again. It's not correct to say that life is moving but life is movement itself. Life and movement are not two different things. In other words, there is not a thinker behind the thought. Thought itself is the thinking. Thought itself is the thinking. Thought is movement in the mind. If you remove the thought there is no thinker to be found. If you remove the thought, there's no thinker to be found. Remember, uh, is it Ron? No, Epstein, uh, I forget his first name, Rob Epstein, or uh, maybe I think of the filmmaker, but uh, Epstein uh, has a book called Thoughts Without a Thinker, right? So if the mind stops moving, there's no thought. Thinking is movement in the mind. And even when there is movement in the mind, there is no one thinking. How does that happen? So um, if, if that wasn't already unnerving enough to learn that there is no real I behind the sense of a self constructed through the operation of the aggregates, the Buddha then goes one step further by claiming that these five aggregates which we together typically call a being, are themselves dukkha. They are suffering. That is, the aggregates and dukkha are not two different things. The Buddha says, oh bhikkhus, oh monks, what is dukkha? It should be said that the five aggregates of attachment are dukkha. One and the same. And uh, Buddhaghosa summarizes uh, all these previous points when he says, mere suffering exists, but no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but no doer is found. So there are actions, but there's no one behind the actions. There's no one behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Who's drinking this? Who's talking? Who's looking at the screen? Who is it? You're all eddying. You're all surfing. <laughs> okay, so going back to the eddy uh, metaphor. Uh, What we tend to take as our being is nothing more than an eddy in the total stream of life in which no I or core entity can be found at the center of the vortex. I don't know if you've ever done this. I actually like putting my fingers in the middle of an eddy and seeing what happens. I just like watching the interaction of fingers and eddies and just kind of watching things change, you know, but there's never anything I can grab. Do right? you ever try that? You can't grab an eddy. There's nothing there to grab. Right? Um, so, you know, you get this now. Our individual mind streams also contain eddies, they contain karmic patterns, patterns of volitional energy that repeat over and over the patterns of which together form our personality. So, some of these patterns are beautiful, right? They're the qualities that we like: of uh, um, compassion, generosity, kindness, intelligence. And some of these patterns, not are nice. You know, they're painful. You know, the qualities of selfishness, or rudeness, or confusion. You know? and however, every self eddying or selfing eddy, I like playing with different formulations of that selfing eddy, is a composite of aggregates and as such, compounded of parts, dependent among causes and conditions, and thus impermanent. Therefore, clinging to eddies, or patterns of any type, trying to hold on to the pleasant one, you know, or to struggle with the unpleasant one. I like this eddy. I don't like that eddy. It's going to be full of frustration and tension. And ultimately, it's going to be futile. You can't grab onto it. Hmm? So clinging to eddies, we could say, is suffering, it's dukkha. Clinging to anything our thoughts, feelings, sensations, memories, bodies, loved ones they're all eddies, and all that clinging is suffering, is the Buddha. Mm-hmm. Now, because of our, our self-eddying circling and the conceit habit patterns, our mind eddies, you have this tendency to um, check its circular motion often. Yeah. Monitoring how careful, monitoring carefully uh, how it's doing so it can be able to circle well, how am I doing? Am I circling well? Right? And all this is to kind of remain some sense of, of being comfort with what's familiar. I'm familiar with my particular habit patterns of circling and how are my boundaries in circling. Am I OK? Am I circling? And then Eddies also compare themselves to neighboring Eddies, judging and evaluating, wondering, how do I measure up to the other Eddies? Am I big enough? Am I fast enough? Am I beautiful enough? You know, whatever the comparison might be. And because our selfing eddy imputes itself as separate, as an independent, uh, therefore, it feels it needs to be protective of its own circularity. In fact, it comes to cherish its activity of swirling Mm-hmm. That, that kind of dynamic that creates its own tiny little universe, right? Mm-hmm. It identifies with its swirling, mm-hmm. And furthermore, it cherishes all the stuff, mm-hmm. all the debris that gets caught in its swirls and vortex. The leaves, the twigs, the insecurities, the wounds, the misunderstandings, the resentments, the fears, the clothing, the earring, the car, the house, you know, whatever you got sucked into your particular vortex, cherishing it, you know, the activity around it, the swirling around it, all with a sense of personal reference about each of the particles trapped in its muddied orbits. So the next time you grab something and you call it, this is mine, Feel the way that there's something circling around it. If you have any kind of sense of attachment to it, kind of that vortex of sucking it into the self, it's mine, my precious. Right? Mm-hmm. Just kind of feel that energy and notice how that, that helps perpetuate the spinning of suffering. Mm-hmm. Because um Repeating some scars or, or mental formations make us think we are something, right? In, a, in an ongoing way, the more likely it is that those patterns or eddies will uh, come up again in the future, right? They'll rise again in the future as a way to confirm our self image. So we, uh, so our, you could say our repeated actions, our habitual karma, strongly condition our personality view. And the, person of audience, the personality view, our, our view of our particular self, our particular eddy view, right, in turn, reinforces the tendency to act in the same ways again. Right? And in sorts, we identify with our habitual actions of body, speech, and mind. This is who I am. I do things in this way. Right? This is an identification with the personality, which, as we have seen, is only made up of impermanent volitional formations. So each time we identify, we become that person that we think we are, again, that habit pattern. Okay? I'm, uh, I'm, no, I'm a good person. I'm someone who's a helper, you know, or uh, I'm a. Greedy person, or I'm an angry person, you know, or someone who has uh, addiction or who uh, is righteous and kind of a moralist, right? And identifies in that way with those particular character habits. Mm -hmm. And a negative self image is inherently painful and unsatisfactory. Of course, we know that. But even a positive self image can limit us. Mm-hmm. It can restrict our choices. It can kind of freeze us and frame us in a certain way. You know, And then we think, oh, I have to be a good person. I have to be kind and generous. But I kind of don't want to today, right? And whenever we have these entrenched patterns, we carry around this limiting sense of I. And we carry it on for years. It just gets perpetuated. And in many cases, it goes bigger and bigger and bigger, unless you start maybe dharma practice. And then maybe it starts to shrink a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Mm-hmm. You stop spinning quite as much. You start, So you stop collecting as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dharma teacher, Guy Armstrong, he, in his excellent book, Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Emptiness, or for, no, sorry, that's not, not a word. Emptiness, A Practical Guide for Meditators. Uh, If you have a chance, read it. It's it's an excellent book. He writes that if we think of people we know well or look closely at ourselves, we can see how sometimes a dominant pattern becomes the organizing principle for a person's whole life. See lives organized around addiction, craving for attention, for money, ambition, need to control, fear, aggression, perfectionism, self. But even wholesome qualities can become neurotic if the identification is wrong. The compulsive helper, the strict moralist, perhaps the the disciplined expert in the monastery. Hmm, I wonder who that might be. Maybe the eno or the tanto, or maybe the abbot, hmm, right? Or the overly generous person who has time for others but not for the family, right? One's whole life can be built around trying to satisfy these urges, which ultimately are one's own making, important, ultimately are one's own making. The patterns have been formed through our own ignorance in the technical Dharma sense of not knowing, not understanding. Um, When entrenched, they feel very compelling and we lose touch with our freedom of choice. They bring suffering and are not easy to change. So later on in the practice, we're talking about um, freedom of choice and free will and how does karma and free will uh, relate to each other. But not tonight. Wait, I'm running over. I'm so sorry. So um, this, uh, this is the bondage of past bondage of our own choices, of our own karma. We're bound to our karma. Uh, uh, it's uh, of karma or action. The Buddha said, action makes the world go round. Action makes this generation turn. Living beings are bound by action, like the chariot wheel by the pin. And okay? so you have the spinning something again, circling around something. right?" And the the point of the Buddhist teaching is for us to step out of these patterns of of action identification, of selfing. Living beings are confined by karma because these patterns shape our actions in compulsive ways that lead to suffering for ourselves, and if you've noticed, suffering for others, right? Dharma practice is to free the heart and mind from compulsive karmic habits. And despite the, the power and tenacity of karma, the Buddha unequivocally assured us that it was impossible to become unbound by the chains of karma through practice, particularly through uh, it's possible to become free through the Eightfold Path. So his own insight into uh, karma, the night of his awakening, led to his formulation of the Eightfold Path, which was a path to become unchained, become unbound uh, from karma. So like I said before, to study Buddha Dharma is to study karma, and to study karma is to study the self. So this means we need to develop awareness of our patterns, our habits of body, mind, uh, in our nervous in our nervous system. They get very entrenched in our nervous systems. Right? Our whole body is basically resonating, you know, vibrating with these habit patterns. They're in, uh, in our thinking, in our emotions, of course, and in the actions we perform every day. So if you study your actions closely, you will, see, you will begin to see your, your karmic habit patterns. Why do you do what you do? Right? So you can study them through meditation, through mindfulness, uh, whatever personal self-study is, is helpful to you. And once we identify our patterns, we, we can apply the yogic techniques you know, we learn through meditation practice That allow us to, you could say, act on these patterns, to respond to them rather than reacting out of them, and changing those that we can. And you know, in some cases, it might be some of those we can't change so much. So can we accept them? Can we recognize them? You know, and just allow them to be what they are, with some compassion and kindness for ourselves. And because ignorance of our true nature lies at the heart of suffering. And because there's clinging in each sense of self, the Buddha advised using insight or um, the perceptions of both impermanence and not-self as a uh, strategy or a skillful means to dismantle this tendency towards clinging, towards grasping. Right? What are you grasping? There's nothing there. So whenever you see yourself identifying with anything you know that, that creates a sense of stress or uh, Anything that's impermanent and constant, whenever you're caught in your whirlpool of emotions and me and I making, you might try on reminding yourself that this is not self. Not self. It's not not worth clinging to. It's not worth calling this myself. Why? Because it's painful. Why would you want to? Call it myself if it's painful. So realizing this and and reminding yourself it's not self. That Eddie is not me. Helps you let go of it. That Eddie is not my fundamental self. When you do this often and thoroughly enough, it's said that this can lead to awakening. This is what the Buddha discovered. So in this way, this... Not self-teaching lies at the heart of wise discernment, we would say it. What, when I do it, will lead to my long-term happiness and welfare and liberation. This is what the Buddha was teaching, that you'll find true happiness by letting go, by releasing, in a sense of renunciation, renouncing, grasping, surrendering that tendency to grasp, surrendering that tendency to, to whirl. Right? And just to be clear, the Buddha didn't say that all selfing or all any creation is necessarily bad. In fact, we need a healthy sense of self in order to thrive and take care of ourselves in our body minds. So some ways, uh, some forms of selfing, you know, as the Buddha and his disciples found, are useful along the path. So as when you kind of develop a sense of self that's conscientious, that's responsible, kind of confident in your practice. And while you're on the path, you can apply the perception of not-self to anything that would pull you astray or have you start spinning in dukkha. But only at the end do you apply the perception of not-self to the path itself, right? When there's no more clinging to the aggregates, you have no need for perceptions of either self or not-self. Because you're free. You found happiness. Let me see here. I have a little bit more to go. But I think what I'll do is wrap it up, because I don't want to go much longer. But maybe there's a practice question you can uh, ask for yourself. Given that there are actions, what kind of action is selfing? You study for that for yourself. But what kind of action is not selfing? Mm-hmm. When is it skillful, and when is it not skillful? When does it bring a sense of ease? And when does it bring a subtle sense of of dukkha, suffering? And what skills can help you develop um, a a, a skillful sense of self and learn how to uh, use the process of not suffering in a skillful way? So But ultimately, you get to that state of happiness, that state of uh, you know, the unconditioned, unlimited you know, sense of being, opens expansiveness, where you can put all the both selfing and not selfing aside. Right? So there's no extremes. This is the middle way. It's not either or. And the Buddhist insistence that there is ultimately no I or no self, no center at the vortex of our personal eddies. It raises an interesting question. How can there be karmic continuity from life to life? Though that's something that we'll also be studying. The answer is that every intentional action needs a karmic imprint in the mind. And most often, this trace is so subtle that we're not even aware of it. Little little you know, seeds and swirls that continue on some way when I do not even recognize it. And most often, uh, it, it, it kind of remains within us at a, a kind of inaccessible level of the mind. Again, to refer back to yogachara, the alaya, the, our universal unconsciousness, you could call it. And from there, it continues to influence how we experience things and think about them. So it's, it takes a lot of work to actually notice at a very subtle level. Most of us are working at the kind of the gross level, the very obvious level. But as you deepen in your meditation practice, begin to study the mind-body at a a much subtle level, you begin to be able to perceive these much more subtle ways that uh, eddy-forming is happening in some way, right? There are karmic imprints that are happening. And uh, it's the subtle consciousness that's conditioned by our previous karma that is said then to exit the body at death and carries along our entire karmic history. This is possible because although ultimately there is no self, relatively speaking, each of us is defined by a life stream of connected moments. One moment of consciousness acting as a principal cause transfers its karmic burden to the next during our life. And it says uh, our death as well. It is our very belief in a self, according to Buddhism, that holds this karmic stream, this continuation, intact, and enables us to have the illusion of being a separate, discrete person. And it's this illusory idea, structured according to our karma, again, every time you hear the word karma, think action, according to our intentional action, that continues from lifetime to the next. Okay, so while I could go much deeper into the concept of rebirth, uh, as understood in Buddhism, we're going to leave that one for another time. So I'm sorry to have gone longer than I intended, and uh, there's no time for Q&A, so my apologies. It is my karmic tendency to do this, and I am studying that tendency. So I, uh, I appreciate your patience with me, and so let's say goodnights. We'll do the closing chants we'll see you all later. Rest, rest well. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we all fully enjoy the Dharma.